We're, we're in a, a series. In fact, we've been in a series since about April, I think, in the story of Joseph that we've called a relationships revolution. And we've been asking God to speak into all kinds of relationships and help us to understand what it means to do friendship and parenting and marriage uh, and, and church relationships as well as we can. Um, and in fact, having spent all of this time journeying with Joseph through his life, we've reached, we've reached the end today. <laughs> Today he's going to die. So, ah, oh, sorry, I've ruined it for you. Oh, sorry about that. I've ruined, anyway. um, So we've reached his last words, and and I thought it was only appropriate to read some other famous people's last words. So Spike Milligan, his last words were, I told you I was ill. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? Oscar Wilde, either this wallpaper goes or I do. (laughs) Humphrey Bogart. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. And my particular favourite, John Sedgwick, who was a, a general in the American Civil War, he said, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. <laughs> it's just good. Anyway, so if that amuses you, fine. If it doesn't, then get a life. So Genesis, we're in Genesis chapter 50 this morning. So if you've got your Bible, there is the place to turn. The very, very last chapter, the last passage, really, in um, the book of Genesis. And we're going to read from verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And there ends the book of Genesis. Here is Joseph, 110 years old, having had all kinds of ups and downs and challenges in his life, walking faithfully with God right to the end. And I just find that so challenging and so inspiring, walking faithfully with God right to his very last breath. And my eldest son has just started at the academy, the secondary school, and he's learning how it all works, you know, in a different school, different way of doing things. And it reminds me so much of, of when I was at school, just figuring out how everything worked. And in particular, I've been thinking about school sports day. Because for me, that is like the ultimate low point of every year, school sports day. If any of you uh, can relate to that, and that's fine. If you like sport, then God bless you in that. Anyway, so school sports day is just coming up and in my first year at secondary school and we had a meeting and it was a meeting of all the people in our house to figure out who was going to do what 
race and what sport. And so the teacher says, right, who wants to volunteer for the 100 metres? And everyone except me put their hand up. And I thought, that is so weird. Why would you, you know, like, if you don't like sport, and I knew some of the people didn't like sport, why would you volunteer for that? And then it was like the 200 metres. Everyone's really keen for the 200 metres. 400 metres and the hurdles and all of that stuff. And then eventually it got round to the 1500 metres and everyone else had had their name written in a box except me. And, they were, and, then, and then I realised I've been totally stitched up here. This is how this works. Everyone volunteers for the shortest races. And so the day came and it was tipping down with rain and it was driving wind. And I arrived at my, you know, my lane and everyone else was clad in lycra and you know, looking like they were going to take it really seriously. And the gun went off and they all pegged it into the distance. And I was doing my best, but I only had little legs. Uh, and... And, and I was doing my best, going round. Eventually, they went round past me, and then they went round past me again. And then people, my friends from the grandstand, started coming out onto the, onto the, the track. And like one of them was like running alongside me, like, come on, Chuck, you can do it. And there was somebody else there who was like feeding me chocolate. And I think there was somebody else behind me, like pushing me along. And eventually, I made it across the line. I finished the race. And the next year, I volunteered for the shot put. The point is, the biblical vision for my life, for the biblical vision for the Christian life, is that we would make it to the end of our days. We would cross over the line still being faithful to Jesus. We haven't made it as a Christian until we've made it all the way home. I've been living with the book of Hebrews over the last few weeks and there's this well-known chapter in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 where uh, the writer is talking about all of these faithful um, Old Testament heroes of the faith you know and and saying how how much faith they had and kind of celebrating their faith and um, in in chapter 11 verse 13 he pays what is clearly supposed to be a massive compliment to these heroes of the faith he says this all these people were still living by faith when they died. As the Apostle Paul would say, he'd say, they fought the good fight, they finished the race, they've kept the faith. One of the key goals for us as Christians has to be not just, I'll... I'll, uh, Celebrate and worship God and, and, I'll, and I'll tell my friends about Jesus. One of the key goals for us as Christians has to be, I'm just going to make sure that throughout my life, right to my very last breath, I'm honouring the Lord. We're in a season right now of uh, lots of students converging on Aberdeen and lots of Christian students looking for churches and I'm sure there are people here this morning who are in that place and my advice to you would be there's loads of great churches in Aberdeen Uh, And I'd encourage you to go around and look at a whole load of them as quickly as you can and make a decision as quickly as you can and then settle in and make it your place. And and the people that we most worry about are the people who visit churches and visit churches and visit churches and never make a decision. And then uh, they're still visiting churches in their second year and then maybe in their third year they don't bother. But there's a, a statistic that I read which is absolutely horrendous and it's this. More than 70% of Christian students who start university as Christians, by the time they finish their course, they're no longer walking with the Lord. More than 70%. It's tragic. 
And of course, actually, it's the same for, for believers in general. I think the statistic in the UK is for every one person who's a committed Christian and is regularly part of a church in this country, there are three people who used to be. And so it's not cut and dried. It's not, it's not oh, well, we're all Christians here today, so, so we'll all be fine. It doesn't really work like that. Here is Joseph, 110 years old, still walking faithfully with God. And so our big question for today is, how do I do the same? How do I get to the place where I get to the end of my life still walking faithfully with God? And Scripture's answer to that question is a local church. Scripture's answer to the question, how do I make sure that I'm still walking faithfully with God right to the end, is I need to be part of a place, part of a people, part of a a family in a local place who will love me and support me and encourage me and, and keep me on the narrow path that leads to life. And just forgive me for coming back to Hebrews again, but like I say, I'm sort of living in Hebrews at the moment. Twice in the book of Hebrews, there's this tiny little phrase that I've been absolutely loving. And I think you have to kind of read it in, in, in like a gangster voice or, or like, a, like, just imagine you're part of the mafia and it's this little phrase, see to it right see to it and it comes for example Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 he says see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness you see the point he's making is you are all responsible for seeing to it that each of you stays on the the narrow path Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. That's the answer. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. It's the same in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it. There it is. See to it. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it. And so I want to throw out just one more definition this morning of the word church. Church is a group of people who see to it, by hook or by crook, by any means necessary, that as many of us as possible walk faithfully with God right to the end. We're a group of people who see to it. And what we see in this passage, in in the very last few breaths of Joseph's life, is he is doing everything he possibly can to see to it that his family continues to walk with God and continues to receive everything that has been promised to them and so he gathers his family around he gathers his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-grandchildren and all of their spouses or spice gathers them all together and then also he's got his brothers as well and presumably their children and grandchildren great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. So we're looking at maybe six, seven, eight hundred people, something like that. He gathers them all around and then he, he, he gives them these instructions about his bones. It's a slightly odd thing, actually. He says, whatever you do, don't bury me here. I don't want to be buried here. He says, what I want you to do is to put my bones in a coffin and then just keep them out of the ground. Don't, don't put them anywhere else. Just keep them there. Maybe, you, you know, put them in the living room. Uh, maybe use it as a coffee table. But just don't bury me here because I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried in the promised land. 
And it's a really, really unusual thing for Semitic people to do, to not be buried straight away. You know, the ordinary thing, and you see it in the life of Jesus, is they wrap the body as soon as it's died uh, in, in a cloth, and they open a tomb, and they put this body onto a shelf in the tomb. And then they wait for that body to go from being a body to being a skeleton, and then they gather up those bones, and they put it with all the other bones from all the other people who have died previously. That's why you see again and again in the Old Testament, you know, it says, for example, about Abraham... Uh, Genesis 25 verse 8 then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age um, an old man and full of years and he was gathered to his people that's the phrase that's used all the time in the Old Testament he was gathered to his people because they used to wait till it turned into a skeleton and then gathered the bones and then put it with all the other bones that's, that was the normal thing in fact this is the only mention of a coffin in the whole Old Testament So I think what he's doing is, he's doing the equivalent of what Bugs Bunny used to do in the cartoon. Some of you have no idea even what Bugs Bunny is, which is ridiculous, but uh, um, Elmer Fudd, you know, is is chasing the rabbit round, the wabbit round with a, a shotgun. And then Bugs Bunny comes along with two massive symbols and he, and he puts them around Elmer Fudd's head and he just goes, crash, 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 like that, he's like, dong. Joseph is seeing to it that his family gets the point. Don't settle here. Walk faithfully with God. Even though he's just about to fall asleep for the last time, he's saying to the rest of his family, wake up. And the church is supposed to be a group of people who do everything we can to exert as much influence as we possibly can on one another, to get the symbols, to crush them around people's heads, to say, whatever you do, stay on the path. And it seems to me that this this message that he's sending out is actually saying three things. The first thing that he's saying is, look to God. Joseph's explanation of this slightly bizarre request is found in verse 24 and verse 25, and I love it. He says this, I'm about to die but God will surely come to your aid. And then he says it again in verse 25. God will surely come to your aid. In this moment, his encouragement is to stay faithful and to trust in God and to look to God to be the deliverer, to look to God to be the saviour. He's like saying, things are actually pretty cushy now and we're quite wealthy and things are going well. They won't always be like that, but you must look to God for your deliverance, for your salvation. When I was much younger, before the internet, um, I wrote off in the back of a Beano uh, comic uh, to a, a thing for a joke catalogue. I wonder whether anyone else ever, ever, ever received this joke catalogue. But you basically had to send off a stamped address envelope to this place in the back of the Beano. And then they would send back a catalogue full of all kinds of jokey things like professional grade whoopee cushions and and those uh, um, electric shock rings that used to give people electric shocks when you shake them by the hand and stuff like that and anyway I sent off for uh, day glow in the dark Dracula fangs and raspberry flavoured fake blood and so one day it arrived through the post I was really excited I went up to my bedroom opened the package put on these, these fangs and then got this raspberry fake blood and dribbled it all down to make it look like I'd just eaten someone and then I went straight from there into my mum and dad's room um, to go and look because they had a mirror in their bedroom and, I, and I, as I was running towards their bedroom I tripped over a sock 
and I had this raspberry fake blood and I squirted it all up the wall just in, in their bedroom and all over their brand new wallpaper that had been put up about two weeks previously. I completely panicked. I was like, what on earth am I going to do with this, with this blood all up the wall? And so I thought, I'm going to get a sponge from the bathroom and I'm going to try and wipe it away. And that just seemed to make it worse. So then I tried a sponge with shampoo on it and tried to wipe it away. And then I tried, like, toilet duck and meths and all kinds of different things. And all I succeeded in doing was bleaching a massive part of the wallpaper and then rubbing my way through the wallpaper to the wall right in the middle of that. It was just absolutely dreadful. And in the end, having tried every conceivable way of getting rid of this blood, I had to say to my dad, Dad, I know you just put that wallpaper up two weeks ago. I'm so sorry. You know, please can you fix it? And of course he had to strip the wallpaper off and just put a new piece of wallpaper on and it was all all right. The point is, we so often, when we have issues in our lives, when we're struggling with stuff, we look in every other direction except to the Lord. You know, I'll Google it. I'll sleep on it. I'll try and fix it with wine. I'll try and fix it with chocolates. If no one else can help, maybe you should hire the A-team. I'll try every single thing, every available idea. And then finally, I'll pray. Joseph says, look to the Lord. The Lord will be your deliverer. The church at its best, is a set of relationships we have in our life who point us back to the Lord. Let's look to the Lord. Have you prayed about it? We have so many saviors in our lives. Look to the Lord. Secondly, he's saying, by getting these bones and getting them put in the middle of the living room, he's saying, this is not it. Here is Joseph at the very top echelon of society. He's like the prime minister and um, he's wealthy and he's powerful and he's influential. And so therefore, by association, his whole family is wealthy and powerful and influential. In fact, just previously to this passage, his father Jacob dies and the whole of Egypt mourns his death for 70 days. So you can see how significant, how influential his family is in the nation of Egypt. And so they had every reason for saying to one another, well, we've arrived. We've made it. That this is really comfortable. Actually, why would we want to go anywhere else? This is brilliant. They might have even fooled themselves into thinking that this is the promised land. You know, well, we've got milk and honey here. And yet every time they tripped over Joseph's coffin, he was reminding them, this isn't it. This is not the promised land. God has more for us. He's promised us a land of our own. The point is the local church is supposed to be a group of people who say to one another over and over and over again, this is not our home. We don't belong here. Don't settle down here. This is not it. We become like the Israelites. You know, we're really just camping in Egypt. We're aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We're treating this like a temporary home. We must not invest our money in buying treasures here because we have to leave them behind. 
Because one day our, our, our Lord is going to come and he's going to gather us up as his people and he's going to take us to be with himself in his father's house that has many rooms and it will be a land flowing with milk and honey and we'll be with God forever. And that will be our home. This is not our home. And the church is supposed to be a community of people, a community of Josephs who say to one another, this isn't it, is it? It's quite comfortable sometimes, but it's not it. Lastly, he's saying to them, you must live by faith. I love how the writer to the Hebrews describes all of these different uh, heroes of the faith. In verse 13 of chapter 11, he says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. It's a whole other thing. It's, it's one thing to say, I'm living with faith. It's a whole other thing to live by faith. You know, it's possible to have a faith, to say, well, I've kind of got a faith. It's a whole other thing for our faith to possess us and to make all of our decisions about life and money and, and our, our, where we live and what we do for a job and where we serve and where we pour out our life based on what God is about to give us on the future that he's calling us to. It's one thing to live with a faith. It's a whole other thing to live by faith, trusting God for the way ahead. That's what he says about all of these characters. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, built an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. He's leaning in to the future that God has for him. By faith, Moses left Egypt, persevering because he saw him who was invisible. It's not a gentle thing to live by faith, but it's a powerful thing to trust God for the future, to trust God for his provision, to trust God that whatever he's promised us, he'll deliver. And actually, that's what uh, the writer to the Hebrews commends Joseph for. It's really weird. You know, Joseph had been exemplary in lots of areas. And so if, if you didn't know what the writer of the Hebrews said about him, you might think he would say, uh, by faith, Joseph dreamed big dreams. Or by faith, Joseph interpreted other people's dreams. Or, or by faith, Joseph uh, resisted temptation when it came across his way or by faith Joseph served God faithfully even in the hidden place and you could just go on and on with all the brilliant things that Joseph did but actually doesn't mention any of those things it only gives him one sentence and the sentence is this Hebrews eleven twenty two, by faith Joseph when his end was near spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones interesting it's as if he's saying, God promised us a land. God will give us a land. And he's encouraging the people of God to lean in and to inherit what has been promised. I was reading this week about George Muller. Many of you will be familiar with that name. He was a German evangelist who... Uh, because God had called him, he, he arrived in Bristol in 1832... And as he was walking around the streets of Bristol, he saw that there were loads and loads of kids who were sleeping rough and who were starving. 
And so he, he and his wife, they opened up their rented home and they welcomed in 30 little girls. And they just, just come and live with us. And they just tried to feed them as best they could. Um, and then they rented another house. And then they rented another house. And I think at one point they had four or five houses that they were feeding all of these kids. They had about 300 kids. And then the neighbors started to complain. That is so typical, isn't it? The neighbors started to complain. This isn't the sort of area that we thought we'd moved into. And so he had a purpose-built orphanage made that would, would take 300 kids. And in fact, by 1870, he had five homes with space for more than 2,000 children. And he never asked anyone for anything. He just asked God for everything and trusted that God would provide. And so uh, often they would find themselves just praying and asking God that he would provide them breakfast. And there's a well-recorded moment where there are 300 children sat there, all neatly dressed, you know, ready for school, but hungry. And so they were praying, Lord God, please would you provide breakfast? And there's a knock on the door. And the baker is, the baker is standing there at the door and he says, well, listen, I just couldn't sleep last night. And so I just thought, I'll just get up and I'll make some bread. And he made three batches of bread. He said, I don't suppose this is of any use to you. And they're all like punching the air and celebrating. And then there's another knock on the door, and it was the milkman. And wouldn't you know it, the wheel of the cart had come off directly outside the building. And he said, look, I'm going to have to get rid of all this milk so that uh, I can fix the wheel back onto the cart. Is there anything you could do with all of this milk? And they're just going, thank you, God such faithfulness and he recorded in a book in fact he had to get other people to start recording it as well because it just took up so much time he recorded every gift that had ever been given to him or the children and it added up in those days in 1870 something to 1.3 million pounds which in today's money would be worth more than 90 million pounds and he never asked a single person for anything directly and God provided everything that they needed because he leaned in. He didn't just live with faith, he lived by faith. Imagine a church full of George Mullers or full of Josephs. Let me just finish with this. Um, there's there's a, a thing, a, a movement that has appeared in the, in the contemporary church over the last few years, which is brilliant. It's called Messy Church. Hands up if you've heard of Messy Church. I'm expecting you to put your hands up in the south and north sites as well, by the way. Uh, I'll find out afterwards. But me- Messy Church is, is brilliant. You know, they're, they're flinging wide the doors of, of local churches in communities all over the UK and elsewhere, I'm sure. And they're, 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 people are coming in and they're doing crafts and art. And, and there's probably music and, and drama and a little talk and there's loads of coffee and tray bakes and all of that. And I think when it's done really well, it's really su- successful. I was just thinking, though, the name is a bit misleading, isn't it? Messy church. Because I don't think such a thing exists as an unmessy church, as a neat and tidy church, as a non-messy church. Church is messy. You know, you hear people say, well, wouldn't it be lovely if we could just bring our church back to, like, the New Testament times? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get back to, like, church how it was in the New Testament? And I think, not really, no. You want to go back and be like Corinth? Messy church. You want to go back and be like uh, the Philippians? 
where he says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche, make up, for goodness sake, this relationship is wrecking the church. There is only one type of church, it's a messy church. But we need in our lives people like Joseph who will see to it that we stay on the narrow path. And there is only one place to find Joseph's and it's the local church. We need a community of people who will see to it that we walk faithfully with God until we cross over the line. Why don't we stand?